Yours says owls? I like hedgehogs better. That's awesome. So um, <clears throat> apparently, someone thinks my readings are too long, uh, which I will just say that was like two minutes, by the way. And it is not two and a half pages if you read it in the Pew Bibles where it's really itty-bitty and it's like two-thirds of a page. So there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so today, uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing something a little bit special. In honor of Halloween, we are going to be digging into hell. All right, you missed your cue. Your cue is, oh, yay. Can't believe these people. All right. Well, anyway, so we're going to be digging into some of the ways that hell is understood in the Bible and some ways that we might be able to more productively think through uh, this idea that's been at the heart of Christian tradition for a long time, uh, maybe more productively than some of the ways that we might have grown up with. Uh, so today, we're looking at the idea of hell in the Hebrew Bible, and more specifically, this idea of this place called Sheol. In Sheol, in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, imagination, it's this murky, dark, dank place, I guess. It's kind of like, if you know Greek mythology, it's like Hades. It's this really just kind of murky, it's not really clear what it is exactly. And so when you hear hell talked about, in regards to the Hebrew Bible, we're not talking about Dante's Inferno or Michelangelo's Last Judgment, all this hellfire and brimstone and torture and all this kind of stuff. Sheol isn't about torture. Uh, it's not where you're punished for all the bad things you did in your life it, or uh, punished for not accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It's not that. Everybody goes there when they die, according to the Israelite imagination. And so it's not being tortured in hellfire and brimstone, but it's also not a particularly pleasant place to be either because you're dead in this murky, hazy kind of place, I guess. Um, and there's maggots and worms all around you, and you don't really want to be there, but you also don't really have a choice because that's where people go when they die, according to the Hebrew Bible, because... That's just what happens. You just go to Sheol and kind of exist, I guess. And to wade into this idea, we're going to take a look at this passage we looked at, this incredibly long, tortured passage that I tortured people by having to have them read today um, that was really just obscenely long. It was horrible. Um, and we're going to take a look at this passage from Isaiah, um, the prophet Isaiah. And so throughout history, there's been these empires uh, that, that have had these grand pretensions attempting to conquer the entire world. And for 100% of them, they've risen and then they've fallen. And then another empire comes and takes their place. So you can easily view history as this series of rising and falling empires one after another. And at this point in our history, where our passage is this morning in Isaiah, we've got the Babylonian Empire of the Hanging Gardens fame. And just like you might imagine with the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire is super rich and powerful. 
They are the biggest force in the world at this time. They've conquered this huge swath of the Middle East, including our friends, the nation of Israel, the Israelites. So the passage today, as we heard, presents itself as a taunt. So someday in the future, when you're free from, from the, the tyranny of that oppressive Babylon, you're going to look back and mock them for thinking they were gods, for thinking they were invincible, that they were so great. And a key part of this taunt this morning revolves around the idea of Sheol, the Hebrew underworld. So basically the taunt goes like this. You Babylon, you think you're way better than everybody else. You think you're the most important, most powerful thing that exists on the world. No, that's ever existed. No, you think that you're basically God. Nay, you are higher than the gods. That's what you think. But look, here's the thing. When you die, you're going exactly the same place as everybody else down into shale, to that murky underworld. Nobody escapes it, even you. Everybody, including you who think you're so great, everyone's going to be the exact same in shale. It's, it's the great democratizer, the great leveler of social status. You who tried to climb the peaks of heavens, Babylon, You, just like Icarus, the higher you fly, the farther you have to fall. And you know what? The maggots and worms don't care if you were super powerful up there. Everybody's down in shale. Everybody's the same. So in our taunt, shale brings this tyrant of this giant empire down to the same level as the rest of us. So now, at this point in history, um, we don't really have much of a sense of an afterlife. If we have anything, it's really pretty amorphous. It's really confused, not really fleshed out yet at this point, and kind of like Sheol itself. And there's... Definitely no sort of, you know, good guys go here for doing good stuff. Bad guys go here for doing bad stuff. There's no sort of evaluation in that sense. That comes hundreds of years later. At this point in our religious development, basically you experience your reward in life here on earth. There's no sense of a second life of continuing to live, just As we said, everybody dies and goes to Sheol. So when we finally do get a sense of a second life, coming, it comes with people who've been wrestling for years and years and and decades and centuries with this thing, with the fact that it's pretty clear. In actuality, people don't get what they deserve in this life because there's really rich, powerful people who are evil, who are living great lives. They're really rich, and they never get punished for it. And there's great people who are living miserable lives because everything goes wrong to them, and they never get rewarded for it. And so, obviously, this can't be the case that we're rewarded in this life. 
And so the thinking goes, okay, we've got to displace our reward and punishment. So no, it's still true that you get rewarded for good and evil, the thinking goes. God does punish or reward you for how you do, but it's not at this life, it's at the next one. And so that's why you don't see it now. That's why it doesn't seem to be the case when you look around you. And so the belief in the afterlife really emerged as this solution to this problem, to this religious problem that nobody was able to solve within their religious frameworks that they had. But that's the problem with not having some sort of evaluative process or tool Because we know there's good and evil in the world, and we know that people do both. And if we're going to avoid just slipping into nihilism and saying that nothing matters anymore, there has to be some sort of mechanism to deal with processing good and evil. And that's the big problem with shale. As we saw earlier, that's why heaven and hell come into existence in the first place as religious concepts, is to deal with this problem. And Sheol doesn't do that very well. It just lumps everybody together in this big pot. And the punishment for the the evil king of Babylon is to be brought down to everybody else's level. Which, granted for him, probably would seem like a punishment. But really? Now he's at the same level as Mother Teresa? There's something that seems off there, right? Sheol doesn't deal with this problem very well. And here's the thing. So even though nobody believes in Sheol anymore, we still don't always deal well with this problem of evil. That's the key issue for it. We still let that be the key issue for ourselves as well. So for example, some Christian groups say, once you're saved, you're in. doesn't matter what you do. You're, you're saved, you're in heaven regardless. To which the skeptics counter, well, what if you go murder somebody? Huh? And then the proponents, of course, reply, well, well, what do they reply? That person must have never been a Christian in the first place. So notice what's happening in this exchange, right? So I made it up, but it's, it's a real conversation that's happening in various circles. In this exchange, we've got this, uh, we run into the same problems as with shale. So we do have the sorting into good and bad. That helps. That's different. But then everybody's just lumped together regardless of other factors, regardless of how they live, any of that kind of stuff. And so to solve the inevitable dilemma that comes up, what happens when you don't live well, the solution that they come up with is just disavow the person. They were never really a part of us. They were never really actually included in these people. Or alternatively, and maybe more relatably for some of you folks, if you, if you subscribe to universalism, the idea that everybody is eventually going to end up in heaven, you have to figure out how to deal with the problem of evil. Because it's the classic problem with universalism. What about those who are just evil people? Are they going to end up in heaven too? And if so, how is that fair? 
there's a variety of ways people have come up to answer this type of question, and some are better than others. But the point is, you have to deal with this in your theological stance. You have to deal with this question of good and evil. And in all three of these cases, there's not really a great mechanism to deal with the problem of evil. In Sheol, they just straight up don't have a solution to it. And then in those first Christian circles, the solution is disown the person and say they never really were a Christian. And then for universalists who think everybody's going to be saved, a lot of times they don't really have a solution. Maybe they haven't thought through it or they haven't come up with how that would work. So ultimately, unlike both Sheol and, uh, and those two strains of Christian theology, our theology needs to robustly reckon with this problem of evil as, as um, one post-Holocaust Jewish theologian said, if your theology can't stand in the light of Auschwitz, it's not worth having. Our theology must truly deal with the problem of evil and suffering without theological sleights of hand and trying to skirt the issue and trying to just not just look the other way because it's too hard to deal with rather than having to think through or maybe even change our theology on the basis of human experience. And so this relates to our conceptions of heaven and hell. And so for you, for whatever beliefs that you hold about heaven and hell, what happens to those who commit atrocities, both on a big scale, so war criminals, but also on a personal scale, say batterers? And then, especially if you don't believe in hell, how do you deal with this problem of evil in the world? What do you do to make it so that there really is justice in the world for those who are victimized? So this week, may you interrogate those beliefs of yours. May you make sure that your theology adequately represents all the facets of the experience of human life, including that of evil and suffering. May it be so.